Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. A bumpy week on Wall Street as lawmakers in Washington debate whether to raise the nation's debt ceiling, again flirting with debt default as they did a decade ago. As the COVID pandemic continues to grind on, killing nearly 688,000 Americans and some 4.7 million worldwide, the United States also eased travel restrictions for European travelers as regional travel patterns are approaching normalcy, uh, although China's return uh, is slow. Speaking of China, Boeing issued its 20-year market forecast saying, the pas- saying that passenger demand will grow 5.4% a year. A company said the same thing last year, driving a market for 8,700 aircraft valued at $1.47 trillion, adding that 20% of wide-body uh, demand will come from China. The relationship with China and the rest of the world, however, is worsening, especially in the wake of Beijing's hostage diplomacy. Huawei's chief financial officer, Meng Wanzhou, uh, was released from three years of home detention in Canada after reaching a deal with U.S. prosecutors. China, in turn, released its two Canadian hostages, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who have been held for some 1,000 days. Contrary to China's claims, the two events were linked, a worrying trend for an increasingly unpopular economic power dependent on international trade for its prosperity. In the wake of the Air Force Association's annual conference and trade show, the United States Air Force late on Friday announced that Rolls-Royce beat General Electric and Pratt & Whitney for the $2.6 billion contract to re-engine the service's 76 B-52 bombers with 650 new F-130 power plants and a seven-second video clip on Twitter of a futuristic aircraft being wheeled on a flatbed at Lockheed Martin's uh, electronic and stealth uh, facility in Hellendale, California, has sparked speculation on what the new plane is. Joining us, as they do every week to discuss the week on world markets, are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Avalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy. Everybody, thanks very much uh, for joining us, as you guys always do. Great to be here, Vago. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Always great to be on, Vago. Thanks. Exactly. It wouldn't be, wouldn't be Sunday unless we we're all uh, convening. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ron, uh, start us off a rocky uh, week um, on the street. What's driving the volatility we've been seeing? Yeah, I, I think there's there's several factors. But this week, it was really the commentary that um, uh, the Fed Chairman Powell uh, had. Um, if you look at what happened to interest rates after uh, he spoke, uh, interest rates jumped in two days from about on the 10-year, about 1.3% to 1.45%. That's a big move on a percentage basis in just two days. And you saw the financials, uh, Bank of America, JP Morgan, so on and so forth, lead the market up, which is a general indication that the market's now starting to spit, expect um, the Fed becoming maybe a little more hawkish um, maybe as soon as late this year. I think that was the takeaway from uh, Powell's commentary. Uh, and that led to some volatility in the market. Broadly, if you look at um, our group, um, the, the A&D group, it, it did okay. Um, if you look at the, the S&P on the week, the S&P on the week was up about, you know, with some ups and downs, it, it netted up about half a percent. Um, and, you know, the commercial aerospace names kind of chased up a bit. The names that were kind of underperformers, you saw some 
of the the the, the weaker performing names uh, in the first half of the year, trying to revert a little bit. Uh, you know, Boeing was up uh, a little over three and a half percent. Lockheed Martin was up two and a half percent. The defense names in general outperformed the market. Let's say defense was up about a percent and a half. The real big winner on the week uh, was uh, Embraer. Uh, Embraer was up uh, almost twelve percent, uh, and that was on, on the heels of some news around their um, uh, EV tall business and some other other things going on. I think the market's finally figuring out that they're a monopoly in the market that they're in, um, and that that drove some of the volatility. Um, if you look at uh, fuel prices or oil prices, oil prices were largely steady on the week, uh, closing the week in kind of the low seventies, and that's that's where they've been for the last couple of weeks. Um, so I think that's what's going on. And um, debt is, are, right, I mean, it was driving part of the story for some investors this week. I mean, are you hearing anything about debt concerns and whether or not the United States, right, I mean, this debt default chicken game is being played in Washington as it does, um, you know, depending on who's in the White House and who controls Congress. Uh, Republicans are making it clear that they agree with this debt ceiling increase, but they don't want to increase the debt ceiling because they want to run against Democrats for being tax and spend Democrats, right? So what's driving this is not economic rationality or strategy. It's, it is it is strategy, but it's political strategy to win in 22. Uh, but, you know, it was talk like this panicked the market uh, about a decade ago, and we ended up with the Budget Control Act. I mean, are, are investors concerned about yeah, it's interesting. If, if, you look at, if, you, if you look at um, the stock performance, in particular, the defense stocks as a bellwether of the market, particularly when you talk about um, budgets, um, it, it's interesting. When the conversations around um, uh, debt ceilings happen and, and there's the back and forth and there's the threat that the U.S. could default, you, you tend to see the stocks underperform. But then when things start to come together, um, the stocks will actually bounce back. Right. So there's this, if you will, a, like a, a volatility, a trade around the whole debt ceiling discussion. Um, and it, it almost feels like the, the market's trying to pull that forward, that the market kind of kind of kind of can see through this, that ultimately, you know, will the U.S. default on its debts and will the debt ceiling threat really end in a catastrophe? Probably not. And, and, and my sense is the market's like starting to see through that. But for sure, if you look at the defense stocks over the last month or so, they generally underperform the market. And in my thesis is, and it's come up a little bit in conversations with investors, is that has been some worries around the budget negotiations and the debt ceiling talks. And that's that's the fact pattern that we've seen happen in the past, and the stocks tend to underperform, but then bounce back after. Sash, as your uh, colleague, uh, Nick Cunningham, uh, was relatively upbeat that we've gone from panicking about the Delta variant to somewhat of a new normal, or I should say even an improvement. Uh, This, even as the disease hits uh, vaccinated and unvaccinated alike, especially in the United States, vaccinated friends who have escaped getting sick for a year and a half have found themselves hospitalized for weeks. That's uh, happening with a dear friend of mine. Um, But, you know, how how does the change in policy uh, in D.C. regarding air travel changed the broader picture, in part because despite an EU move to sort of block Americans, um, you know, like any EU regulation, that's not on a nation by nation basis. What's this mean overall for transatlantic trade as far as you're concerned or travel? Well, I mean, look, let, let's start off with share prices. I'm, I'm looking at a, um, uh, a one week share price chart, actually, that was done on um, Thursday morning uh, last week. And the three top performers 
uh, you know, so effectively over the period of the administration's change of uh, uh, change of policy, Rolls-Royce up 16% on the week, Safran up 8% on the week, MTU Aero Engines up 6% on the week. The, these are aero engine businesses. They depend more than anything else on engines being used, flight hours, and then the spares that are all the services that come from that. And so the equity markets were just saying, you know, this is an incredibly important uh, move because we get transatlantic markets back. It's getting, Of course, it's going to be patchy. But just as Ron said, equity markets are looking through the threat of a, or the, you know, the, the, the theory of a, a US default. Equity markets are looking through the current, uh, you know, astonishing patchiness country by country uh, as, to, as to who takes uh, whose travelers and saying, you know, th- this was probably the big, uh, roadblock or you know air block uh, that's been removed and um, market took that very very positively. Aero engine companies benefit disproportionately compared to airframers. Airframers have no skin in the game in terms of airline operations to speak of. Um, you know they don't get paid more or less depending on air movements. The air aero engine companies do, and it was the aero engine companies that absolutely led led the way last week. It's a bit very unusual to see it quite so clearly reflected in share prices. And walk us through what Airbus uh, had to say, uh, right right on the heels of what you were talking about, aircraft makers. Obviously, Boeing put its forecast out uh, as well. Uh, sort of what's your sense on what both the European and the American companies had to say and what it all means? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, Airbus had a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a big, albeit I have to say, I, you know, it was a two-day seminar, but... Um, it didn't entirely fill uh, uh, those two days, but this was Airbus's strategy for the future. Airbus's view of how aviation has to evolve. The good bits—they talked about technology a lot. Um, Airbus is firmly committed to uh, hydrogen. You know, wh- whether we deride it or not, Guillaume Forry, Airbus's CEO, sees hydrogen as being the way that the civil aerospace industry. Uh, uh, ultimately makes its contribution to uh, reducing emissions to zero rather than just net zero. Um, and clearly they are massively at odds, or he is personally massively at odds with Dave Calhoun of, of Boeing, who doesn't see hydrogen and doesn't see um, you know, new aircraft based on that as being any part of Boeing's uh, strategy going forward. Um, the other really interesting um, bit of technology they talked about is um, effectively a, a, a you know wing design which will be changing shape into you know or the, it'll be changing the mold line uh, in flight. That's something Airbus actually first looked at nearly thirty years ago with what they then called a variable camber uh, geometry. But um, this clearly is going to be a composite wing and much much more uh, sophisticated. And that that's what they see as being one of the keys for the. Uh, for, for the next generation of air, aircraft. And then they also, they talked a lot about uh, urban air mobility and they have an urban air mobility demonstrator, um, City Airbus, that is, it's refreshingly honest in terms of its limitations. Uh, it's not very long range. It doesn't have a great deal of endurance. It doesn't carry very many people. On the other hand, it's an aircraft company and they're actually, you know, building demonstrators and flying it. And in the in the scale of Airbus, their investment in urban air mobility is chump change. So, you know, really doesn't matter um, how much they spend. It, it, you know, it, it, it's a rounding error compared to the, the cost of a next generation aircraft. The bad news, very quickly, um, they've changed their um, 
Airbus have changed their uh, catchphrase. They used to say, we make it fly, which was at least accurate. Uh, and I mean, now they say the world's a beautiful place. Uh, horrible. But, you know, the technology is interesting. Speaking about the world and, and its place, what did you make of the um, uh, Boeing announcement? Anything, anything interesting to report there? I think I know how Richard feels about that, but go ahead. I'm always, look, listen, um, market forecasts are marketing tools uh, in this industry. They, I, I think there's very little in the way of sort of value. You know, saying the market's going to, you know, the market's going to grow, the market's going to go up, people, more people are going to buy airplanes. We get that every single year. It misses all of the downturns. Um, and actually, I think it misses the fundamental change that's going to be required in terms of new technology, uh, zero emissions, and the degree to which the increase in price that make a company of that might just slow this industry down. Uh, but I, I, I'm afraid I just let all that stuff wash over me because it's marketing stuff. Richard, anything you want to say about Boeing or do we want to talk about China? Aside from what Sash just said, which was dead on, it looked a lot like a uh, hope dressed up as an assertion in terms of the wide body quotient. You know, the market right now regards wide bodies both as assets and as, well, sales campaigns as kind of vaguely radioactive. So hopefully they will be right one day about wide bodies, but it's sure hard to see that uh, right now. Um, and, and obviously, right, I mean, airplanes like the uh, A321 uh, NEO are changing the economics of the business, right? So if you can go point to point with a smaller number of more targeted passengers, and maybe more flights a day, why do you want to have a giant airplane with 300 uh, or 400 seats in it? Uh, that's going to go point to point, right? I mean, you're, exactly. you're much more flexible. Uh, you know, well, if there's one, if there's one takeaway reminder from this terrible pandemic, it's that yet again we've been forced to learn that small is beautiful. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As long as long as it as long as it has range. Uh, Ron, uh, did you want to add something briefly to this? Because um, I want to also have uh, Richard start us off on sort of the broader China discussion. Go ahead. Yeah, just quickly on the on the Airbus commentary. Um, yeah, the 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 reforming wing, if you will, that's been around since the Wright brothers, right? I mean, if you look at the Wright flyer, right. um, you know, it was, that's how they controlled it. It didn't have, you know, flaps or anything like that. That happened later with Glenn Curtis. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, it's, I think it's really interesting that they're looking at that. And then just you know, call me a fuddy-duddy, but um, when you think about hydrogen, given it's, you know, the, cryo the cryogenic nature of it, how you have to store it, what it means for airplane design, um, how explosive it is. Um, I don't know. It still seems like a long shot to me. I, I think, you know, there's, it's going to be net neutral. It's going to be with um, SAF and that's the way the industry is going to go and it's going to benefit everybody. But that's just one guy. Um, yeah, I, do you know what? Can, can I just say, I, 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 I totally agree with you, Ron. I, you know, I think your logic is impeccable. And that's what makes me so interested because Guillaume Forey is a, hyper-rational individual. He's a very, very good engineer. You know, he's exactly your type of guy. And he has nailed his colors to the hydrogen mask in a way that in anybody else would seem rash. And I'm, I'm genuinely puzzled. Because, and uh, so, you know, we're going to see, aren't we? But it's, you know, it really, it, it's been a surprise to me quite how, I can't think of another word than fixated they've become on this. Well, if I could just quickly chime in for a second on this subject, I think if there's one theme that's obvious with hydrogen, it's that economists and engineers don't really enjoy conversing very much. So you're exactly right about uh, MFLE. 
I think he's a great engineer from the sound of it, and he really loves hydrogen. But does he take into account the economic implications of what Ron just did? And, you know, they use terms like, well, you could get an A320 load and an A321. Okay, that is marvelous from the standpoint of emissions. It would also kill any airline that tried to do that. It would be catastrophic from an economic standpoint. So I'm not sure that you've got both sides of the table talking to each other. Um, I, I would say just one thing about hydrogen. Um, under pressure, uh, it is um, it has actually some very good stable properties when it's under pressure. Let me just put it that way. And if you can vent the pressure off very, very quickly, uh, you know, General Motors uh, obviously is our General Motors Defense is our sponsor and they've done a lot of work on hydrogen. One of the things that, you know, in, in their briefings, uh, even if it gets hit by a round, it vents so quickly that it tends to be less of an explosive risk, uh, actually, uh, because when the pressure dissipates at, at multi-thousand uh, PSI. Anyway, let me, let me just move the conversation along uh, to China uh, and hostage diplomacy. Uh, Richard, why don't you start us off about what you think this really means? I mean, the, you know, the, Xi Jinping has sort of been feeling the power, cracking down his philosophy as more communism, uh, will make us grow faster as opposed to actually screwing the whole thing up, uh, right? That more wolf warrior diplomacy is necessary here. Uh, and the world has just seen that if you're a high-tech entrepreneur and you're doing business in China, uh, right? It, it's becoming like a whole series of things that we cannot ignore. And what does this mean for Chinese growth going forward? Because people in Beijing were expecting the United States to peter out, uh, no pun intended. And Actually, the U.S. economy is, is actually doing well if we don't politically screw it up, right? Walk us through what this trend means, because if you're anybody who does business in China, you got to be worried about whether or not you could be taken hostage. That's exactly right. And, you know, we've got the situation where I think the best way to characterize the China-Western relationship is a bad marriage with no possibility of divorce. But, you know, there are factors that could move it towards divorce, towards total decoupling. And you're looking at this air show happening in a background where it's still the biggest single export market and tied with the U.S. or biggest single market. But do you really have to be part of it? And also, how can you really trust it? Journalists can't routinely go there uh, anymore without being concerned. And if they've corrupted the legal system to allow for this hostage taking nonsense, how can you trust them not to corrupt the air safety system? You know, so far the CAAC has been given a pretty, you know, pretty high marks for keeping the system safe, but it's obviously gotten very politicized as best illustrated by the max recertification process. And again, if you can corrupt justice, you can certainly corrupt aircraft certification. And on top of that, you've got the bizarre reality that every time they talk about the C-919, they realize that they're, well, frankly, sitting on a Potemkin village because 99.9% of the value add on that plane comes from the West. So you've got a recipe for serious trouble on so many different levels. And I frankly think that the PRC government is starting to look a little empty handed here and a bit amateurish, to be honest. Um, I want to uh, just give a quick shout out to our sponsors uh, before we get on with the rest of our show. Think Contieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain uh, command and control. Ron and uh, Sash, um, how would you guys add to the China discussion and how we should be thinking about this market? Because 
right? This is baked into, right? I mean, it's it's baked into Boeing's business plans, right? 20% of their wide body sales will be to China. That assumes China wants to buy those airplanes or we want to sell them those airplanes. I'm not saying it's getting to that point, right? Boeing worked very, very hard to try try to make the case that there should be no sanctions against China. But obviously, um, you know, the, the president is saying, we're going to compete. We're going to be tough on China, even though we try to cooperate with it on on, on certain things. Go ahead, uh, Ron and then Sash. Yeah, I, th- I think you, you can't um, you can't separate this from maybe the fate of the C nine one nine, right? You know, China has come out and said you know they want to try to get the aircraft certified by the end of the year. I wouldn't be surprised if at Zhuhai coming up at the air show in China. Uh, if they either outright certify the airplane with like a whole litany of special conditions or, you know, um, maybe hint that it's going to happen before the end of the year. Uh, I would imagine in the current environment, they'll want to certify that aircraft before they certify the MAX just to, you know, to, to you know, pound their chest. I guess that's the best way to say it. Uh, take a victory lap, if you will. And, and to Richard's point, I mean, if you really do kind of get into an environment where there's a decoupling, um, then maybe that aircraft takes on a, a broader presence within China and in the Belt and Road countries where they will inevitably use transportation to, uh, diplomacy to try to sell the aircraft. Now, that being said, the airplanes, you know, engines and much other things, so a big chunk of that supply chain is, is woven into kind of the non-Chinese uh, aerospace world. So that complicates things. Uh, maybe it you know, puts a catalyst on China to try to... Um, accelerate an indigenous, excuse me, um, aero supply chain. Um, so they're less dependent on sort of the non-Chinese world or the non, the world that's not under the influence of, you know, Chinese, you know, politics. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but I think it's, it, when you think about everything going on um, with the broader geopolitical Chinese situation, um, you can't separate that from commercial aero and you most certainly can't separate it from defense. Right. If you think about, and this is something we've been thinking about a lot lately, if you think about Chinese defense spending, and then you look at it on a purchase parity basis, depending on how you do the purchase parity um, uh, calculation, and it's not as simple as, you know, what does a Big Mac cost in Beijing versus in uh, New York? Uh, they're spending anywhere, they, the Chinese are spending anywhere to, between 50 to 70% of what the U.S. spends on, on defense. At some point here in the not too distant future, they'll be in parity with the U.S. And then what's that mean from a global defense spending perspective? Because it's no longer the U.S. leading, it's the U.S. counterbalancing. Um, but I mean, that's a topic for probably a different show. Um, uh, that's ex- excellent uh, point, uh, Ron. Sash, your your sense on all this and and where it goes yes. before we we shift over uh, to the big Rolls Royce win uh, and and other defense uh, r- related news. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. China. I think. I mean, I would take issue with Richard on the C nine one nine and its certification. Um, I think what we sometimes forget is that because the C919 is perceived in China as the you know the state the Chinese aircraft the state's aircraft and the certifying authority is the civil aviation authority of China which happens to be like every other organization in China a, a you know a department of the um, uh, communist party they are hypersensitive 
about the C919 failing, i.e. crashing and killing people, because a failure of that sort directly affects the Communist Party. And that, that becomes existential for the Communist Party very, very quickly indeed. I mean, you know, just to get, you know, to, to give you an example, um, uh, Russian Premier Mikhail Gorbachev blamed the Chernobyl disaster for the collapse of the Soviet Union because what that did was to undermine the Communist Party and uh, um, uh, because they were responsible for everything associated with that nuclear reactor and its catastrophic failure. And, and you know, C919 could well be very, very similar. I, you, it's important to remember that the, the head of um, airworthiness at the CAAC goes by the nickname of Dr. No, because he has been so rigorous about saying to COMAC, no, you can't do that, because he doesn't want to have an aircraft on his uh, watch that um, that goes wrong in any way. So I actually, I think I think the aircraft will be safe. I think it'll be deeply uninspiring. And yeah, it's hugely reliant on on Western technology. But the next one will have less, and the next one will have even less. And that's that's how they do these things. Um, what worries me much more is actually the decoupling between China and the West in terms of information flow. Um, we talked about this over a you know year and a half ago. But um, you know, once the Chinese start arresting journalists for doing the journalist thing. And threatening the you know the small number that remain, um, then actually the the passage of information between the West and China becomes not just very weak but also very very inefficient. And I really worry about that because that means that we will send signals they won't receive. They will send us signals we don't re receive. And you know in in our space, the fact that Bradley Perrett, the uh, Beijing editor of Aviation Week and Space Technology. Had to, uh, who was an Australian, had to leave the country in really quite a hurry, um, uh, you know, 15 months back, because of exactly this. That was a real blow to our understanding of, of the Chinese aviation industry, civil, military, the whole, the whole lot. And I can't see how we're going to get that back. And that's how mistakes happen. And I think it's, it's mistakes in terms of signaling and in terms of actions that really worry me. Indeed. But there were a lot of dynamic factors associated with this, right? I mean, if you're a, a bright Chinese uh, student, comes to the United States, gets a first-rate education, uh, you, you know, you, you may have a couple of jobs with the Western firms, you want to start your own business, the last thing you're going to do is want to go back to China. And that has implications, right? Everybody is looking at what happened to Jack Ma and is happening across the Chinese technological ecosystem. And, and that's highly problematic with China. I'm one of the people who believes China becomes a lot more dangerous as it becomes a a lot more unstable. Uh, so, so it's certainly going to be something um, uh, interesting to watch. Uh, well, me... or, or I'll go the other way around, a lot more unstable as it becomes a lot more dangerous. Uh, right, right, exactly. Right. I mean, it's going to feed, one will feed the other. And that's the reason, you know, great powers miscalculate. Um, they they overestimate their own capabilities. They underestimate the capabilities of their adversaries. And as we saw with the AUKUS uh, deal, um, you know, the, the United States is pretty serious about shoring up a lot of these strategic relationships across the Asia Pacific. And I think that people who look at this as a submarine deal sort of miss the broader point. It is a strategic alliance between and among the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia, uh, and one of a number uh, of um, uh, alliances, obviously, that this administration is is looking to somewhat reinvigorate um, to better stand up to China in a much more methodical sort of way, uh, even even if the the, the Huawei executive has been uh, has been released. 
Um, let's uh, let's move on. We've got about 10 minutes left in the program and we've got a lot uh, to uh, cover. Uh, Richard, let me uh, go to you and ask you about the Rolls-Royce deal. Uh, Hard-fought competition, Rolls-Royce, General Electric, Pratt & Whitney, uh, Tom Bell and his team must be rejoicing uh, at this point. What does this deal mean uh, ultimately? Uh, and I want to get your sense both on this as well as uh, the Lockheed Martin Airbus partnership. I remember having reported on this many decades ago when uh, uh, the then Lockheed Aeronautics Chief Mickey Blackwell was talking about a natural partnership with Airbus. At the time, Airbus didn't want to have anything to do with it, whereas now I think Airbus really sees a good partner in Lockheed Martin. Um, walk us through the, the uh, engine uh, competition first. Yeah, so much to discuss. First of all, it was a surprise, of course, because people thought, at least I thought, and I think a lot of people agreed with me, that GE had the slight upper hand, Pratt falling rolls, distant third, you know, and uh, rolls one. And, and yes, absolutely. Kudos to them. They did a great job, clearly. And, uh, you know, having said that, there's nothing terribly special about the engine. I mean, unless the Air Force people looked at it and said it's optimized for that B-52 nacelle, which I'm not really sure. Maybe it's the best of equals or something. But, you know, that engine is going out of civil production. It's being phased out in favor of the Pearl that'll be powering the new Gulfstream series and whatever else. Um, so I'm a little baffled by that. And the one thing I don't like to do when it comes to these sorts of competitions is describe political motives, because at the end of the day, you've got procurement professionals who do their job, you know, two dozen men and women sitting in a room looking carefully at you know, the characteristics and, of course, the price and, of course, all of the uh, all the criteria on which it's being judged. I don't like the idea or the implication. Having said that, it's irresistible at this point. I mean, come on. You know, you've got this moment in transatlantic politics where, you know, you've got the, you know, the Australian-U.S. submarine deal in the background. You've got a lot of Europeans feeling that America is going, turning its back on the two-way street. Uh, you've got Rolls-Royce hurting badly, far and away, the, the most damaged aerospace company as a consequence of this pandemic. This almost seems like a, a, a heaven-sent, uh, well, solution, both to the political aspect and to the financial aspect for Rolls-Royce. It's really fantastic news. How could I not, how can anyone not see the possibility of a a politicized finger. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I this. mean, our our system is so geared to not allowing that um, I to know. happen. And I, know. I And I would also put it that, you know, a company that feels that might be willing to take uh, some financial risk uh, on True. this that another company might not be willing uh, to take uh, ultimately. And uh, right, I mean, the rules argument was that this is the best fit into that nacelle. And the United States Air Force is trying to do the best cheapest job it possibly can. Uh, you know, I mean, it wants to spend $2.6 billion to give another couple of decades of life to the B-52, which is, um, you know, the backbone of its strategic bomber force. So, you know, that, I, I'm sort of a little bit more along those lines as opposed to seeing something uh, nefarious, although, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's pretty certain that uh, I, I shouldn't say I shouldn't speak for either General Electric or for Pratt and Whitney, right? I mean, obviously they'll have to be debriefed, and and once that, we'll see whether or not they uh, protested. I do think that folks did see uh, General Electric, right, which was offering two engines uh, in this competition to sort of have a, a little bit of a better chance, and also not an end of life an engine, but an engine that actually uh, was was going to be in production for some time longer, right? A, sort of a, an earlier life engine, if that makes any uh, yeah sense. They had bracketed the top and bottom of the market with the TF-33 at the, sorry, the 
the yes, the <laughs> the TF thirty four at the the bottom of the market, older technology, big installed base, and quite mature. And then the passport at the top with, uh, as you say, new technology and whatever else. I, I I'm forced to agree with you. It probably wasn't politicized, but if the political angle didn't exist, it's very convenient that it was. Uh, <laughs> it all happened this way or something I, I, like that. And, and what's the provenance uh, of this engine for people who are going to be asking about it, right? This isn't a British engine, it's a German engine. Yeah, years and years ago, uh, back in the mid-90s, um, the Rolls-Royce folks did a deal with the, uh, the former East Germans and came up with this Troy Holland facility, facility in Dalewitz, uh, former East Germany, and stood it up to build the engine, believe it or not, for the old McDonnell Douglas MD-95. Uh, obviously, that wasn't exactly a stellar commercial success, but the engine did great. Uh, with business jets, particularly Gulfstream, just fantastically well. Um, and it's been built there since. Um, obviously, they're going to move it uh, or major elements of it to uh, Indianapolis, but it's not by origin an Allison engine. Um, let me uh, take you uh, briefly to the uh, Lockheed Airbus uh, uh, bridge uh, tanker uh, contract and and very quickly bring the rest of you in on this, right? I mean, unfortunately, uh, there is a PBS Frontline uh, special that was uh, about the 737, certainly not uh, Boeing's fatal flaw, uh, talking about the 737 program. Uh, we have Christian Davenport of the Washington Post reporting the sort of engine um, or thruster issues with the Starliner spacecraft that the company uh, is having a little bit of trouble uh, diagnosing. All of these things are complicated. So, uh, you know, these, these sort of things happen. And, and, you know, seeing as how the company did suffer a failure, it's, it's trying to be particularly careful. Um, Richard, do you think that Lockheed and Airbus are pushing on a door that might prove remarkably resilient to opening this time around if they compete as they will with an A330 MRTT tanker? Uh, you know, it's a great plane. Uh, it really is. And Lockheed Barton, of course, brings a great deal of political power. But this is a cost-sensitive contract. It's effectively a cost contract, you know, which means margins are going to be super thin, negative in the case of the KC-46 so far. So how does this happen? You know, you basically have Airbus and Boeing offering a tanker at the best deal they can give. And then Lockheed Barton adding, I don't know, 10, 15%. What does it need to add up for whatever infrastructure and profit, whatever else? How does that not destroy their chances unless Airbus is willing to take an enormous loss, which maybe they will. I, I, I don't know, but I just don't see how this works out from an economic standpoint, particularly since Lockheed Martin doesn't have the same interest that Airbus does in making Boeing bleed. You know, it's very much in Airbus's interest to give Boeing a bloody nose and make them lose another five billion dollars like they did with the Pegasus. But I don't think Lockheed Martin cares that much because they're not locked in a global commercial competition the way Airbus is with Boeing. Um, Ron, uh, excuse me, Ron or Sasha, anything you guys want to add to that? Yeah, and then me... Ron want to go to you for uh, to wrap this up. Yeah. So just a, just an added comment to Richard's comments on the tanker. If you look at how Boeing sells tankers to the Air Force, or maybe I should reverse that, how the Air Force buys tankers, the Air Force doesn't, it's not a truly a competitive process, like an airline buys an airliner. So if you want to go buy a 767, um, generally the starting point of the price would be about half of the list. And there's maybe a competitive bid, whoever, you know, you know how it goes, right? Pricing in commercial markets is very competitive. Once you, you kind of win the bid on a tanker or whatever, it's, it's not at all. And 
it's it's Boeing sharing its costs with the Air Force and who knows what those costs really are. And it's not like the Air Force takes a tanker that they bought commercially and could bring it to a mod shop and get it mod and priced out that way. That would probably be a lot cheaper way to do this, honestly. They don't do that. So I don't know how hard it will be for Airbus actually to price competitively and make some money, be it that the way these things are priced and how they're costed out is so not commercial and really fat to be blunt, right? So, you know, there, there could be a path for Airbus to win this and make money doing it in the backdrop of an Air Force, I would say, that is really sick of the Boeing tanker and a lot of the performance on it and what's going on with it and it being delivered with you know ladders and other thought on it and air force one being delivered with what tequila bottles or whatever they were um it's you know so you know the lockheed is stepping into this i would argue with a position of strength um sash uh, anything you want to add both on uh, the rolls royce uh, engine as well as uh, on the Lockheed tanker. Uh, and I have to come back to Ron uh, very briefly. Give us your take. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, on, on, on the Rolls Royce um, engine uh, point, yeah, it's it, it's an old engine. It's an end of life uh, program for biz jets because they've got something better. But boy, compared to a TF 33, it's off the scale. Um, the lovely thing about this from Rolls Royce's point of view, of course, is there are just so many engines involved. Remember that. Every B-52 is equivalent to four BIS jets. And these are engines that Rolls-Royce makes money on um, at the point of delivery rather than having to wait for services. So, you know, this isn't 76 aircraft for uh, Rolls-Royce. This is over 300 aircraft, which means that it's over 10 years of the equivalent BIS jet production for them. It's a, it's a marvelous contract uh, uh, and, for them. Eight, eight, eight engines, no waiting, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I really am, uh, you know, I, I saw the announcement and I thought, you know, about time too, because it was shortly after Rolls-Royce was privatized in 1986 that the then chief executive, Sir Ralph Robbins, started talking about the prospect of re-engineering the B-52. And at that stage, they wanted to re-engine the B-52 with the RB211 535 engine because they could put one RB211 535 on for every two TF-33s. So you'd, you'd have a, a four-engined aircraft rather than an eight-engined aircraft. And Rolls-Royce offered that two, three times over the subsequent decade and a half, two decades. Can you imagine how much the U.S. would have saved if they'd actually gone ahead with a re-engineering at that stage rather than at this stage when there is, you know, only 25 years more uh, service life left? What a, what a wasted opportunity. Um, um, yes. As, Although although uh, Air Force engineers would say that, uh, right, they needed to go with an eight-engine airplane for a whole variety of nozzle and, and structural reasons, right, in, instead of um, – they, they needed to stick with eight smaller engines rather than four bigger ones. Uh, it, uh, Ten seconds, because we're um, almost at time, and I've, I've got to go over to Ron. Go ahead. What was your yeah, last I mean, Jim, I, no, I mean, just on the tanker, I, I actually agree with Ron. I think that um, were Airbus to offer the A330 – at closer to civil pricing than to list pricing, um, it will sweep the field, which is what it has done uh, in, at, you know, as, as a tanker with every other nation in the world. I think they will be very, very competitive. They might even be able to cope with uh, Lockheed's um, rather inflated profit margins on top of it all. <laughs> 
I would, I just, uh, it, Lockheed would probably say that there's nothing inflated about its profit margin. Um, Ron, very quickly, uh, Hallandale, what did you make of that seven second video? Uh, and why would anybody release it except for messaging uh, reasons? It looked like a upside down uh, wind tunnel test um, article. Uh, it did not have a tail in that picture. Maybe it has a tail in real life, who knows? Uh, but it's clearly some sort of uh, testing vehicle, right? It's uh, had sort of a chine front and a very smooth mode lines. So it's a very low observable type of aircraft, um, some sort of fractional scale, you know, third, half, uh, something like that. Uh, but uh, other than, you know, you, you'd, be you'd be accidentally releasing an image like that or on purpose to send a message to somebody somewhere that we're working on something that you don't have. And uh, how did you think it looked? Oh, it's, it's hard to say, right? I mean, at the angle we had, I mean, it was, you know, if, how can I, however that, that photo got out, it got out in a way that it didn't really release all that much information. Just one quick rebuttal. I think you're looking at a tanker contract that I'm not looking at because, I mean, boy, Boeing got hosed on that. So there's obviously a greater degree of commercial sensitivity uh, <laughs> than I think uh, you deal with in the military world most of the time. This was not cost plus by any estimation. I just um, well, they, they didn't. I mean, they didn't get hosed. They just bid very aggressively to win yes. it. Yes, and but that's they what did you it. Do right. The they did it to it themselves. Right, and then if you hadn't had problems and you had a camera that worked and you could aerial refuel and not have some of the other challenges we faced, this would have gone a lot more smoothly and they'd have made a lot more money. And I think a lot of people were left scratching their heads. But I guess my point, my point is this, and I think this is an important point, and then this is kind of where. I think Airbus has gone with their foreign sales. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Sash. It's it's a seven six seven, and you're modifying it as a tanker, but it's a form of freighter. We modify freighters all the time, right? right? So you you take a commercial airplane, you bring it to a shop, and they turn it into a freighter. Uh, if you look at the price that the Air Force paid for those things, and you look at it, the scope of what you'd pay for a freighter and to mod it, the Air Force is still paying a fortune for these airplanes. And right. Boeing losing its shirt on it is squarely in Boeing's fault. Yeah, their their camp. It's they could have made money on it, just like they can make money on an, a seven six seven freighter. That just how they handle it, how they do the cost accounting, and how they did their engineering and 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 uh, proceeded on the program. That's all Boeing's fault. Uh, I, th I think there are a lot of people who are looking at it exactly the same way, uh, Ron, especially at a time when the company's strategy was predicated on militarizing their commercial aircraft uh, for all sorts of mission uh, applications. We can get to the E-7 uh, later. Obviously, a lot of interest in the Wedgetail aircraft in the United States. So that's also a potential positive for Boeing because it is a program that uh, they've gotten a lot of the challenges out of and appears to be doing uh, the job for Australia uh, as well as uh, for Turkey. Anyway, guys, thanks very much as always for joining us. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you on again next week. Thanks a lot. Great to be here, Vaga. Wouldn't be a weekend without it. Or occasionally even a Monday without it, but this time it's a weekend. Thanks, Vaga. One day we'll have to do this in person, Vago. Great to be on. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. 
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.